Chapel, Mason City. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 today. We're in this section where Paul is dealing with the spiritual warfare subject, the subject of spiritual warfare. I believe today's message is very important. I mean, they all are. Uh, this one has been stirring me up quite a bit. Many Christians that you meet are discouraged, defeated, deflated, tormented, fearful, lacking peace, or lacking power in their lives. And I believe if applied, what is found in today's passage is sufficient to turn all of that around. This section dealing with spiritual warfare begins at verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." Father, before we come to your word today, Lord, we want to just pause and declare that we recognize, Lord, this is the word of God. Like the Thessalonians, they received the words that Paul taught as the very words of God himself. And Lord, we do want to humble ourselves in your sight here today and bring ourselves before your scripture. We recognize the authority you have over our lives. And so we do also know that apart from your Holy Spirit's intervention, the illumination of doctrine, Lord, that these words will fall flat. And so beyond the words of a mere man, we pray, Father, that your Spirit would speak to us, show us who we are in the Scripture, show us our Savior in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last time we talked about Satan a little bit. We recognize kind of who he is, that he is an angel named Lucifer. He was cast out of heaven for rebellion. He led a third of the angels into rebellion, which are now demons or evil spirits. Demons are organized. They're aimed at destroying God's people. Believers are in this ongoing battle. This is a little review from last time. Upon becoming a Christian, a person joins in this spiritual battle because you, you come onto the side of the Lord, and now you are a target for spiritual attack. Now, God uses this battle for growth, maturity, and spiritual strength. Satan, though defeated, continues to attack believers. He's a defeated foe, but yet he will not give up. He still attacks believers. He will be dealt with, finally, you read in the book of Revelation. We won't talk about that today. Believers face attacks in various aspects of life. The enemy's relentless attacks aim to destroy what God loves, and God loves you. And so, therefore, the enemy is pinned against you. We are vulnerable to attacks, but God equips us to withstand. And that's what this whole section of Scripture 
is about. The main points last time were for spiritual warfare. If, if we're going to stand in spiritual warfare, we need to operate in God's strength, not in our own. And we talked about what that looks like last time. If you want to go to our website, you can hear the sermon if you missed it. Number two, we're to understand the battle is not between flesh and blood. It's between principalities, powers, spiritual authorities, rulers in the dark places. It's in the unseen realm. We also learned, finally, that we are to put on the armor of God and then kind of left a bad cliffhanger last week. I didn't talk about what the armor of God is. I said, you're going to have to come back next week. And so here you are, and uh, that's good. This time, what we're going to see is God has graciously provided sufficient armor to stand within spiritual warfare. We must actively put it on to secure this victory or we will not be able to stand, to stand the assaults of the devil. So God has provided armor. We must put it on in order to withstand the attacks of the devil. So today, in these two verses, there are three pieces of armor that we're going to talk about. Verse, uh, verse 14, you see, um, the outline is very simple. It's a three-part. Chapter 14, you see the belt of truth. You also see, number two, the breastplate of righteousness. And number three, you see the shoes of peace. So, number one, let's look at the belt of truth. Verse 14, he starts out by saying, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now, when he, stands, when he says, Stand therefore, most of these pieces of armor are defensive in nature. The sword could be you know, taken as an offensive piece of armor, something to do, you know, to go on the offensive, but it's also used for defensive. But the majority of these pieces are defense. So the command isn't to march, therefore, it's to stand, therefore. And I think that's worth pointing out. He says, stand, therefore. In the book of Ephesians, in the beginning, the first three chapters, you learn how to sit as a Christian. You sit in the truth of who you are in Christ, what God has done for you, how salvation works, everything that's been done for you, chapters 1 through 3, you learn to sit in that truth. That's the first place for a Christian is you learn how to sit. It's like a baby. You learn how to sit up first. They're cute when they don't know how to quite sit up. They sit up a little bit and then they go, ooh, and you're like, whoa. The first place a Christian uh, needs to be comfortable is, is in sitting in the truth of who they are in Jesus Christ and what God has done for them. After that, Christians would learn to walk. And you know, chapter 4 began this section where he said, therefore, walk worthy of this calling. In light of who you are in Christ, walk worthy of that here on the earth. And then this final section, we see Paul talking about standing. And so it fits. You learn how to sit in who you are. You learn how to walk in a worthy way. And you have to learn how to withstand the attacks of the enemy. This is a battle, spiritual warfare, that is going on constantly in the unseen realm between good and evil. Believers are targets of this warfare as demonic forces seek to turn their hearts away from worshiping God. You say, what is spiritual warfare? It's something going on in the unseen realm. It's a battle of good and evil, and there are demons, fallen angels, under the control of the devil that are seeking to turn your heart away from worshiping God. This war, ultimately, uh, the forces of the devil aimed at God, but since you are on his side and since he loves you, you get caught in the middle of this. 
Verse 13 also tells us, if you see it there, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That's the word withstand. And then having done all to stand. He's talking about withstanding the attacks of the devil. We're being called to stand firm in the victory that Christ has won in order you know, to hold down the fort. I saw a video the other day online of these military guys that were all set up and, and these, uh, <laughs> these winds came through. They were out in the desert and they were all trying to hold down the fort. I mean, the wind was blowing the tent away and they're, they're all sitting on the, you know, this one guy got lifted up by his post and flung all over. They were trying to hold down the fort. That's the idea. The enemy will attack, but a Christian is to withstand to hold down the fort. He goes on and he says, having girded your waist with the truth. Now, having put on the belt of truth is what Paul says here. Now, you have to remember the context. Paul's writing from a house arrest situation, so he's likely chained to a guard 24-7, you know, to a Roman soldier. So as he has no doubt many times looked at a Roman soldier, as he sees this Roman soldier standing in his armor, he sees a metaphor for how God has equipped us. The following pieces of armor are listed in the order that they were put on. So the belt was not simply there to keep the pants up or as a shield to the midsection. It had a more important purpose. Let me tell you about it. Uh, In those days, the soldiers, they wore long, flowing floor-length robes. You know the Christmas you know, story? Uh, the the you know, guy gets out of bed and uh, the, the angels come visit him, you know, and he's in the long robe. You know, it's kind of like a, maybe like a nightgown, we would think. And, and the soldiers wore these long, flowing robes in these days. And so when it became time to enter battle, the long, flowing robe was all gathered up, girded up, and fastened in with this belt. So this would allow the soldier now to move freely and not be tripped up with the robe. When the soldier was off duty, the belt was loosened, the robe came down. When he was on duty, the belt was fastened and everything was all girded up, or, you know, girded up around his waist, gathered up. This belt is so important. It's like the foundation of all of the armor. It makes him to where he's mobile. It makes it to where the, the robe is girded up and it holds all the other stuff in place. Now, just as the belt is the foundation that holds the armor together, the truth of the Bible is the foundation that holds all Christian life together. If you and I are going to be able to withstand the tax of the devil, we have to understand that the truth of the Bible is the foundation for Christian life. The enemy's been attacking the truth ever since the first book of the Bible. I'm sure you remember it. Genesis 3, if you want to turn there, please. I'm going to read some from there. If you're a Bible flipper, Genesis 3, the first book of the Bible. This is when sin and darkness came into the world uh, for the first time, death. And it's a very familiar story. You've been to Sunday school. You heard Adam and Eve, and you you saw their little fruit of the loom, bikinis they made, and uh, so on. But listen to how the enemy beguiled Eve. Genesis 3, chapter 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. little backstory. Remember remember God said, don't eat of that tree. You can do anything in here, but just don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And so Adam and Eve knew this, right? But then the enemy comes. He was more cunning than any beast of the field uh, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat every tree of the garden? 
Well, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of uh, the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to her eyes, it was a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I want you to notice a few things. First of all, he comes out and he says, has God indeed said? Well, the Word of God was very clear to Adam. You can, Adam's Bible was like this short, like one page. <laughs> do whatever you want, just don't do this one thing. Short Bible. Very clear. But the enemy comes, did God really say that? Man. And she replies back, and it's, it's really interesting. So the first thing the enemy did is he questioned the Word of God. And listen to her reply. She said, God said we could eat of every tree, but the one that's in the midst of the garden, we shouldn't eat it or touch it lest we die. Wait a minute. God didn't say anything about don't touch it. See, she's adding to Scripture. See, when the enemy comes attacks and he kind of gets you to start questioning what the Bible really says, you better hope you know what the Bible really says. Because here she's added something. And the thing that she added, it's interesting because she's kind of making God seem a little more harsh than he really was. He said, don't eat it. He said, she said, don't eat it or touch it lest you die. She added to Scripture. She misquotes Scripture. Then Satan comes out just full force and he says, you shall not surely die. The Word of God is not right. That's an antiquated book that people have studied. Don't you know that all of the stuff in this book has been challenged? These are myths. This is mythology. Jesus didn't. This stuff is wrong. He just comes right out and says it. The attack on the truth has been happening ever since the very first chapter of the Bible. Do you know there's attack on the truth today as well? That's, I mean, that's obvious, right? I mean, think about this. The attack on the truth, this is so silly that you even have to say this in 2023, that there's only two genders. You know, like all of the sober scientific community says, what, there's only two? You know, they can dig your bones up a thousand years after you've been in the grave, you know, and find, you know, that whether you're male or female, you know, like it's... Uh, the attack on marriage. Did God really say that divorce is, is a sin? You know, I mean, what if you don't love each other anymore? Is, is that really a sin? I mean, he challenges the Word of God. How about sex outside of marriage? Did God really say that fornication? I mean, is that really what he means? Uh, universalism. Does the Bible really say, did Jesus really say that nobody comes to the Father except through me? I mean, won't everybody that's sincere, that believes something, essentially get to heaven through one of the many roads, maybe through Buddha, maybe through Islam, maybe through the New Age movement? Sinful lifestyles, does, the, does God really condemn homosexuality? That's a thing that's happening now where people are trying to say, look, that, that word was ad, you know, added to the Bible later. It is true that it was added to the Bible later, but the concept, the, the understanding, the meaning of it has been through the Scriptures ever since the Old Testament. All of these things are being challenged today. There's an attack on truth. Now, it's interesting. I read a Barna study a while ago, and they surveyed people that claim the name Christ, evangelical Christians in America, and they asked them very basic questions like, will everybody get to heaven, or do they have to come through Jesus Christ? And all of the basic questions of Christianity, if you've read Barna's surveys, this was a popular one. And what this survey actually uncovered is that the majority of American Christians are actually pagans, not Christians. They don't believe the very foundation, fundamental doctrines of Christianity, which is really interesting. 
just simply talking to people that name the name Christ, you discover quickly that they really know very little about this Jesus that they claim to follow. Now, I'm not trying to be a, a hardcore person, I, you know. Our culture today is just very wrapped up in feelings over truth. Many people today, you'll say, you know, so you're a Christian, and they'll say, yeah, I feel like this about this. And you share a Bible verse with them, they'll say, I, f- I feel like that's good. Well, you know, I always get a kick out of that when you share a Bible verse with somebody, and they'll say, yeah, I feel like that's good. And you're like, well, it doesn't really matter how you feel. I mean, it's the Word of God, you know. I mean, I'm glad you like it, you know. But what about the ones you don't like, you know? Well, I don't feel like I like them. <laughs> it doesn't matter how you feel, you know. You'll talk to people about the Word of God, and they'll say today, I feel like that's true. It doesn't matter. That's our culture today. The truth is under attack. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Something might be right for you, and it might not be right for me. Moral relativism is what they call that. How should Scripture be viewed? Since we're on the subject, what does the Bible say about Scripture itself? I'm just going to show you a few things. The Bible itself declares that it is inspired. 2 Peter 1.21 says, Prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God, they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So you say, how do we get scriptures that was written by men? Yes, it was written by men, holy men, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture given by inspiration of God. The Word of God is inerrant. There are no errors in the original manuscripts. Proverbs 30, verses uh, 5 and 6, just part of it. Every word of God is pure. It's infallible. Psalm 19:7. the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. John 17, 17, Jesus praying his great priestly prayer. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This is Jesus speaking about the scriptures. He says, your word, Father, is truth. The word of God is indestructible. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Jesus says, will by no means pass away. Everything comes and goes, but the word of God stands. Psalm 119, 160 says, the entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Now, how do you put on this belt of truth? How do you put on the truth of God? Well, it's actually uh, very simple. It's not like this mystical thing. I've heard all kinds of weird things in commentaries. One guy's like, stand in front of the mirror and visualize and and do all these visualization techniques. And it's, it's not even all that mystical. It's very simple. To put on the belt of truth, you just need to do two things. You need to be a master of the Bible, number one, and you need to let the Bible master you, number two. Very simple. Psalm 1 said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates day and night in it. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. He meditates in the Word of God, and he will not be moved. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul's word to a young pastor. He says, and this is good advice for all of us, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Becoming grounded in the truth of the Bible is essential as a follower of Jesus to withstand the attacks of on the truth that come from the enemy. 
Scripture reading matures a believer and makes them able to withstand the attacks. When the trial comes, they know what God says and how to respond. Now, you can't just be a master of the Bible. You need the Bible to master you. As it says in James, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What James says is you can know the word, but if you don't do it, you kind of get deceived. You say, I know all kinds of Bible. And James would say, well, do you do all kinds of Bible? Because like, that's, you cannot know what the scripture means fully until you obey what the scripture says. So you need to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. This is how you put on the belt of truth, is to master the Bible and let it master you. The truth of the Bible is the very foundation of the Christian life, just like the belt is to the soldier, not experience, not feelings. It is the very foundation, the Word of God. Just like the belt is to the soldier, the Bible is the foundation of the armor. Number two, let's look at the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14b having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I want to draw attention, first of all, to having put. Okay, notice in the beginning of uh, verse 14 there, uh, he says, stand therefore having girded. Now he says, having put. And the next thing in verse 15, look what he says there also. And having shod. These are the parts of the armor that need to be put on. He's assuming when these are put on, you can stand. Now, the next ones that come up, he says, take these. There's a difference between being told to take something and then Paul assuming having put these things on, then this is true. So the details matter there. Now, the breastplate. The Roman breastplate was essential for soldiers' protection. Even with battle smarts, if you forgot the breastplate, you're vulnerable. It guards the vital organs. The original Greek word here is the word, uh, it's, it's linked to the term uh, thorax, which is the chest and the organs. Some scholars believe it would extend to the thighs. It fit like a vest. It would safeguard both the front and the back. This total coverage ensured safety. This piece is essential to the Christian as it covers the heart. Now, the heart, according to the Bible, is the seat of the will and emotions. It's the very inner man. It's the core of the being of a person. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. It's the very center of your being. The Bible says to guard this. Now, the breastplate of righteousness. Some commentators, by the way, if you've ever studied some commentators on this stuff, they're all over the place, and there's a lot of different interpretations. And um, some have interpreted it as, as this. They're saying the breastplate of righteousness means to live a righteous life, to be holy, to be godly, for me to live a righteous life. And if I do that, then, you know, when the enemy attacks, hey, nothing sticks. You can't accuse me of anything. And they'll interpret the breastplate of righteousness is that although that's good, I don't believe that's what Paul is talking about here because he's talking about standing in armor. I believe that this is referring to the righteous standing that comes to a believer as a gift from God as a result of their faith in Christ. I believe this is talking about the righteousness of Christ that is imputed or given to the believer. There are two types of righteousness, and I want to talk about one first. 
which this is not talking about here, the breastplate of righteousness, I'll give you a negative example. There's two types of righteousness. There's essentially self-righteousness and imputed righteousness. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, if you want to flip there, if you're a Bible flipper, don't get a paper cut. We're flipping all over the place here today. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Two types of righteousness. Luke 18, chapter, or chapter 18, verse 9. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. So Jesus is going to tell a parable. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, you see how this guy's appealing to God? He's going before the Lord, and his breastplate is that of his own righteousness. He's saying, look, God, I mean, I am, I'm so grateful that you didn't make me like all these other sinners over here. I mean, really. You know, thank you, Lord. I'm so good. I fast twice a week. I, give, I, I go out to my herb garden. I take cilantro. I even, I even tithe the cilantro. Every single thing I own, God. I mean, no wonder you love it when I pray to you. So holy. But, and the tax collector, he's standing afar off. He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified or righteous rather than the other. He says, for everyone who exalts himself, he will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Pharisee, the religious professional of the day, the guy that had made a business of religion, he, was, he, was, uh, he believed God accepted him because of his works. He believed God was sort of a mechanical transaction. If you check the boxes, if you do the things, then God will accept you. And this religious professional sort of dude, he goes and he, he appeals to God based on his own righteousness. Look at my works, God. I deserve to be here. I, you know, you picked a winner. And the other guy goes, I just need mercy. I just need mercy. I'm a, I'm a sinner. Jesus said, look, this guy went down. The guy that said, I just need mercy. I, I recognize I'm a sinner. God, be merciful to me. He says, that guy, he goes down to his house justified. So you have the righteousness of man or the righteousness of God. And I believe that what Paul's talking about here is the breastplate of righteousness, to put that on, is to stand firmly in the righteousness of God and not in your own righteousness in any way. And the Bible teaches this, that God's righteousness is imputed or given to the believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, some of you might have thought Chris Tomlin wrote this, but this is actually in the Bible. He became sin who knew no sin. That's <laughs> just a good, good song, though. For he made him, that is, God the Father made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God the Father took my sin, put it on Christ, and he took Christ's righteousness and put it on me. Oh, it's beautiful. Isaiah 61, 10. 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. He has clothed you with Christ's righteousness. If you have abandoned your own righteousness and come and said, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you've come to him, not standing on any works or any you know, behaviors or rituals or beliefs or anything of your own or any of this, and you trust solely in Christ, then God has clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. God the Father chooses to see you today with the perfect, obedient record of his son, Jesus Christ. How do we put on this breastplate of righteousness? We've been talking about it already. It's simply by trusting in Christ for our salvation rather than our own works. Now, some people don't quite understand this. They still appeal to God. They attempt to appeal to God based on their own works. This makes them completely vulnerable to spiritual attack. This takes me back to my early life as a Christian in Southern California. Now, I got saved out of the dark side, right? And um, listening to Alistair Begg, heard the gospel preached, was saved radically, transformed just by a radio program, convicted really shortly after that that I needed to start going to church, found a church that taught the Bible, went to the church and just enjoyed it, getting fed, getting my socks blessed off all the time. Midweek study, hour and a half long sermon through the book of Numbers, you know, and just being, going home every week. I got to quit grumbling, Lord. I got to stop grumbling. Anyway, during this time of life, I used to go to church, and there was a gal that was playing the guitar. And, you know, I was a single guy, and I was looking at her and going, she's pretty cute, you know. It's just a long time ago, you know. And, but you know, and then they would have prayer time. And during prayer time, my mind would be thinking about, I wonder if I turn my toaster off. <laughs> I'd go in there, and I'd feel like I should sit in the back, or, you know, sit in the front, you know, if I was going to be a good Christian. But instead, I would go and sit in the back. And I'd get this voice that, if you were a good Christian, don't you think you should you know, show a little more interest or something you know, like that? Or you, you didn't even bring your Bible. All these other people have their Bibles. And these voices would not stop the whole time I was in church. They just wouldn't stop. What kind of a guy sits there and checks out the worship leader? Some Christian you are, some powerful Jesus conversion you've had. And these voices did not stop. You know what that is? It's the voice of the devil. And that's spiritual attack. And you know why that's getting through? Because what the devil is doing in those situations, can anybody relate with that kind of stuff, by the way? Yeah? What the devil's doing in those moments is he's getting you to appeal to God based on your own works. You see, you're not standing in the righteousness of Christ anymore. Now you're being condemned because of your own righteousness. Some of you get torn up. You go to the prayer meeting and you say, I don't know, these people are all really super Christian and I don't even know what to say in the prayer meeting. I don't, maybe I shouldn't come to this thing anymore. Some of you come here on a Sunday morning and you say, man, I don't know, if these people knew exactly what was going on in my life outside of here, I don't think they would welcome me. You know, they seem all Christian-y and stuff like that. Look at all cleaned up. We're, I'm a mess, though. 
See, what the devil's doing when he's doing that is he's getting you, he's taking you and putting you in front of God, and he's going, look at their works. Look at the works or their lack of works. And that person gets condemned, and that person gets separated, maybe turns their heart from wanting to worship the Lord because they say, I just can't do this stuff. You guys are all straightened out. I'm a mess. Now, see, the breastplate of righteousness, here's how it practically pans out for me. When I get those voices now, and the devil says, man, Adam, you're a mess. You're a sinner. You could have been nicer to that person. You could have done that. You could have done this. I say, God, I know. I know, you stupid enemy. Isn't it, great? Isn't it great that I'm saved by grace, not by my own works? You know, you humble yourself in front of the Lord and you say, look, I'm saved by his grace. I'm, I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. You know, the devil uses that tactic over and over again. He tries to get you to stand in your mind, in your own works before God, and to make yourself acceptable somehow. So you go around constantly condemning yourself. But it says in Romans chapter 8, it says, therefore, there's no condemnation for anybody that's in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. Why? Because you're covered in the righteousness of Christ. You're robed in his perfect record. Now, some Christians are completely vulnerable to spiritual attack because they haven't figured this out yet, okay? Here is a key. This, is gonna, this will maybe set somebody free here today, okay? When you become a Christian, you don't stop sinning. You don't become sinless when you become a Christian. Now, you sin less, but you never become sinless, and so that might be a surprise to some of you. You might say, I thought I was a Christian, but I keep messing up all the time. Well, the, here's the deal. God has come and moved in with you, but your dead old Adamic flesh is still in there. Very much like the devil won't give up with his attacks, your flesh won't give up in its attempts to rule your life. So although you hate sin, although you would rather not do it, there are times when it's very appealing and you give in to it. But guess what? When the enemy comes and says, hey, man, what kind of a Christian are you? You say, I'm one that's saved by grace through faith, not my own works, and that's why I can rejoice even though I'm a mess. The breastplate of righteousness. My beloved friends, please put on the breastplate of righteousness daily. Very simply, wake up in the morning and say, I'm a sinner that God loves that through faith in Christ has decided to clothe me with righteousness and remind yourself of that many times throughout the day. The shoes of peace, finally. Verse 15. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, some have interpreted this to mean that we need to be willing to go out and preach the gospel, being flexible and ready to move. Although that is true, again, it's not what Paul means here. Again, he's talking about armor. Now, the Roman's shoe was a mixture of a sandal and a boot, sort of. It had cleats at the bottom of it, sort of like a golf shoe, but maybe bigger cleats, more like nails. Extremely thick shoe. This is kind of an aside, but it just made me cringe. But uh, the Romans' enemies, a lot of times, what they would do is take a field, and they would put all these sticks in the ground that had sharpened points, and they would put them all the way in the ground, just with the little sharp part sticking up. So if you walked across that, I mean, your feet would get pierced <laughs> everywhere. So the Romans' shoe was extremely thick, and it had these cleats, and it was just, you were immovable when you were standing 
in this thing. The word preparation there means a prepared foundation. So these are the shoes of the prepared foundation of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the prepared foundation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. When the enemy brings chaos, we stand on the firm foundation, which brings peace into our lives. Even though the war rages around us, we stand in the peace that the gospel brings. Maybe you're in a war today. You can stand in the gospel of peace. This will bring peace into your life. I got to tell you, I was in a war last week. The enemy's attacks are relentless. Busyness, lack of sleep, too many things going at once, trying to teach about spiritual warfare. <laughs> the enemy will attack you, and he has been. And I'll tell you, the only thing that I can do and sometimes is just shut my mouth and stand firm in the gospel of peace. When I first got into ministry, I literally saw chaos behind the scenes like you would never believe. And my pastor, I kept calling him and go, I want to come back to California. He goes, just stand in the peace of the gospel in the eye of the hurricane. It's peaceful there. Remember that you're right with God through Christ and you don't have to respond to the chaos. All the important things are handled in Christ. What do you mean gospel of peace? Let's talk about two aspects of the gospel of peace. One is objective, the other subjective. First of all, Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus Christ has made peace through the blood of his cross. Before you were a Christian, you were not at peace with God. In fact, anybody that's outside of Christ, the Bible is very clear, is an object of God's wrath, that judgment will come upon them, and you're either in the camp of saved or not saved. And God the Father is going to judge sin, going to judge sinners. But Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. How is that? On the cross, Christ took all the punishment, all the wrath, all the hostility that God the Father has against sin, and he absorbed it on himself. And so those who have faith in Jesus Christ now are at peace with God. They have no quarrel with God anymore because Christ took that penalty upon himself. Hallelujah. That's the objective element, the doctrinal objective element of the gospel of peace. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Now, there's another aspect of the gospel of peace, and that is, so we have, first of all, peace with God, and then we have peace of God. So there's a difference. Peace, I'm at peace with God, so now I can experience the peace of God. And you read about that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. It says this, that if we'll pray about everything with joy and gratitude and bring all of our requests to the Lord, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. 
You see, because I'm at peace with God through what Christ did on the cross, now I can have the peace of God. I can submit myself to Him, humble myself before Him, and all of my anxieties will be cast upon Him. This verse in Philippians 4, 7, when you look at it closely, I love this. It says, The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Peace is a guard uh, right here over your heart and your mind. I love this, com- this little part that he says too, this peace of God which passes all understanding. You ever met a dear old saint where they're going through some stuff in their life and you're like, man, it seems like life's falling apart around you and uh, everything that's going wrong could be going wrong. And the person's like, yep, God's got it. You're like, hi, hi, what are you doing? Oh, God's got it. He's got a plan. That's because the peace of God, which passes all understanding, is guarding their hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Are you standing in that peace today? How do you do this? When the enemy tries to mess you up, get you filled with fear, sinful anger, responding to chaos, you can experience peace in your heart by remembering two things. Jesus Christ on the cross has made peace between you and God. That's the most important thing that could ever happen is that you are at peace with God. No matter what happens, you're on the winning side. No matter what happens, you know the end of the story. And because that's true, and because you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and because you take all of your cares to Him in prayer and humble yourself before Him, your anxieties cast upon Him, and the peace of God that passes all understanding comes and guards your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. That's what it means to stand firm in the shoes of the gospel of peace. We lose our peace sometimes because we try doing things on our own strength. Now, sometimes God actually allows our peace to be taken to get our attention. You say, I'm in a season where I feel internal turmoil and stuff like that. Has God allowed that to maybe get your attention? Has he done that to bring you back to him? Have you realized that you need him through this absence of peace? Peace in the heart is a barometer of a good walk with the Lord. If you're lacking peace, you should ask him why. Ask him to show you. Some people never learn to expect suffering in this world. When we, expect, when we accept our position with God, that this world is a broken world, that, like Jesus said, people will experience persecution, suffering. When we do accept our position and when we do stand firm, knowing that we're on the winning side, we will experience his peace. to wrap things up today. The truth of the Bible, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the righteous standing that's given to you through your faith in Jesus Christ guards you from condemnation. The shoes of peace, standing in the gospel of peace, Christ made peace by the blood of his cross and you can experience subjectively the peace of God. You need to master the Word. You need to become a master of the Word. Reading through the Bible a year, every year, is just a good practice. A lot of people here at Calvary do it. If you want to get involved with that, just ask somebody. Say, I want to join up with that. It's kind of good to have, uh, you know, accountability and have friends going through it with you. We have a men's thing right now. We're reading the Gospel of Mark, text messaging one another every other day about it and talking about it. You need to master the Word, and you need to let the Word master you. 
You need to trust in the righteous standing that you have in Jesus Christ instead of your own works and stand in this gospel of peace, experiencing the peace of God. I want to remind you that when Paul says to put these things on, you have to realize what, that there's, a, there's another side to that. It's what if I don't put these things on? You will not be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. Now you say spiritual warfare, this stuff, I don't even understand what you're talking about. The devil does not go after people that are not sitting in who they are and walking in a worthy way. But when you are walking in obedience to Jesus Christ, you get attacked. And that's why Paul is saying, you've got to put this stuff on or you will not be able to withstand. Maybe you've never come into a relationship with Jesus Christ today and you're here because you're curious about God and you've been getting stirred up by His Spirit and you've recognized that you have a need for Him, that the things that you do in your life are somehow not just mistakes. You're starting to be convinced that something is wrong between you and the God of this world, this Creator, uh, the God that has created all things. And I want to make this invitation very simple for you today. The way that you come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ is, first of all, by admitting and acknowledging that you've broken God's laws, that you've committed moral crimes against Him. The Bible says very simply in the Ten Commandments, just He says, don't steal, don't covet, don't make gods before me, don't put anything before me, don't you know, commit adultery. Jesus says, if you look at somebody with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. God gives us this moral code, not that we could master it to earn salvation. He gives us this moral code to show us what he's like, that he's perfect, but it also serves as a test to prove that you and I are flawed. When I read the Ten Commandments, I say, I am flawed. And I come away from those Ten Commandments saying, I need a Savior. And so first of all, that's where it starts, is just acknowledging who you are before the Lord. Yes, you're his creation. Yes, he loves you. But outside of Christ, you're standing in this flawed state under his wrath. So it starts by acknowledging that, yes, Lord, I've broken your laws, I've broken your commands, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Second thing that you want to do then is believe in Jesus. The Bible says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so the Bible says clearly the remedy to get forgiven, to get made right with God is by believing in Jesus. And it's not just believing he existed, it's submitting your life to him as if he is Lord of your life. It's turning from a life of unbelief, doing a 180, and turning to a life of belief. It's abandoning all of your own righteous standing that you think you have apart from Christ. Well, I was baptized. Well, that's good. Well, I was confirmed. That's good. All that other stuff. But none of that makes you righteous. What makes you righteous is faith alone in Christ alone. And so you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you will be saved. Then the last part is you would confess with your mouth. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's that simple. If you've never done that, today I would invite you to place your trust in Jesus Christ.